It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Shakespeare wrote about themes of human life that show up over and over again throughout the centuries. We keep watching his plays and adapting his storylines into new work because they keep resonating and teaching us. My sense is that Shakespeare wants the work to work. And if his ghost is with us today, I think he's not precious about the material. He's going to outlive all of us. It's not like the plays are going to be damaged forever. I think he was excited and is excited about artists coming and looking at the shelf and taking down a play and going, how can I bring this to life? If Shakespeare is going to stay with us, the experts say, we need to keep presenting his work in relevant ways that everyone can access. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations presented at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Shakespeare's King Lear is notable for exploring the poignant and interrelated topics of power and aging. The actor Brian Cox played King Lear on stage and returned to a kind of modern version of the role as Logan Roy in the HBO series Succession. Cox joins Simon Godwin, the artistic director of the Shakespeare Theatre Company in Washington, D.C., on stage at the festival for a conversation about what Shakespeare was trying to say and why his messages endure. The entertainment industry leader and former CEO of Disney, Michael Eisner, moderates the conversation. Here's Eisner. It's so interesting that we have two people that have achieved such greatness with all things, but including Shakespeare. Um, I will say that uh, it's been uh, a fantastic journey for me into studying all this. And I would say that learning about Simon Godwin has been interesting. First of all, he grew up in a relatively comfortable middle-class family, went to Cambridge, did that whole thing, very well educated, uh, probably knows more about Shakespeare by that time he was 17 than most of us. But he started as an actor, failed, gave up, what happened? Why did you leave being an actor? Oh, well, thank you. Well, uh, well, uh, well here we go, everyone. It's, uh, <laughs> No messing around, straight in with full confession. Get right to it. Uh, uh, my acting career started at around 13 years old when I played the, uh, the, the lead part in a series called Five Children and It, based on Lee Nesbitt. Oh, right. Yeah, a novel. And I, and I had three months of bliss uh, le- leaving my family and staying in the Wessex Royale Hotel in Dorchester, where I, I filmed the show. And then um, I did a few other parts as a teenager, but then I quickly realized that I had no acting ability whatsoever. So, so I, I could do versions of me, but I couldn't transform at all. So uh, by the time I got to 17, I realized this was a career that was going nowhere and decided to change and became a director instead. So to tell you what he has done simply with Shakespeare, not to go through the whole thing. In 2014, he directed Two Gentlemen for Verona. 2015, Richard II. 2016, Measure for Measure. Uh, Somehow Nixon was involved and you're presentation of that. 2017, 12th Night, where you switched genders, which was kind of revolutionary. Uh, 2018, Andy and Cleopatra, swimming pools, lounging around while Rome burned. Very aggressive. Uh, Thanks. 
and 2019, there were 100 candidates looking to join the Shakespeare Theater in DC. They were looking for uh, EDI, equity, diversity, inclusion. They reduced it to 22, then they reduced it to nine, and then they hired a white Englishman. So yeah. you can what see how talented he must be and how happy DC is ever since. So let me just give a few seconds on Brian Cox, who I'm sure you all know well. Uh, 230 different acting jobs. I didn't know there were that many jobs. 115 <laughs> films in two years, from 2000 and 2002. 150 performances in Lear, I'm counting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Non-Shakespeare stuff, like Braveheart, Born Identity, Hannibal Lecter, before anybody heard of Hannibal Lecter. He's been described as doing parts for villains, pedophiles, narcissists, yeah. Nazis. <laughs> uh, Typecasting. Type <laughs> Scotland's answer to Marlon Brando. Yeah. I hear, I read. I was also Scotland's answer to Burt Reynolds for a very short time. <laughs> <laughs> I won't even go there. Um, the, you have said that being poor is difficult, but being rich is even worse and more difficult. Uh, as part of your background, uh, you somehow got at 15 to 17 cleaning the stage in your local theater, probably a glorified janitor. Yeah. You got yeah. impressed with all how nice the people were. Well, it was like a home, it was like a family. And that sent you off to the London Academy. Yeah. And from there, we know he started acting 2061, without 1961. 1971, As You Like It, 1983, Lear. I just want to set the record on how much they know about Shakespeare. Taming of the True in 87, Titus Adronicus, which is a very difficult play, which you have said is one of the plays you I, I perform think the best. I did well on that, don't you? Think? Yes, yes, absolutely, definitive, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was definitive, yeah. According to Simon Goodwin, I was the definitive Titus Definitive? Adronicus. How are you when you did Lear in a wild, uh, wheelchair? I, that was, uh, I did Lear in a wheelchair because I went to, you know, when you go to uh, airports, uh, you see people arrive, very healthy, people in their late mid-60s, even late 50s. They arrive there and suddenly they're presented with a wheelchair because they're of a certain age. And they, get into, and they get into the wheelchair, they sit in the wheelchair and they immediately become very ill. <laughs> and I thought, that's an interesting thing about age. You know, I, I'm uh, sorry, Michael, to interrupt, but I, I have a thing about age. I think people act old because other people act old. Mm. And I believe you shouldn't act old. You should be who you are. You know, just because we're going, thank you. Just because we're, we're gray and we don't. But actually, the great thing about being old is you just simply don't give a f <laughs> You really don't care. You, you, you're beyond care. But truly, we are still human and we are still alive and we don't have to do all that old acting you know uh, and uh, we people do it 
and we're encouraged to do it. And, and it's a sort of ageism thing, which I really, really do not like. Mm. Sorry, Michael. One thing interesting about aging, in all these Shakespeare plays, there is Lear, others, and of course, Succession, there is this feeling that old people should go away yeah. and give their power to their horrible children yes. or somebody else. <laughs> and you see that all through Shakespeare and you see that all through Logan. Succession, yeah. You see it through Succession. And do you see it with American Dianne Feinstein? Do you see it with all the talk about Biden? So ageism didn't start in the last 50 years. Yeah. It certainly is all through Shakespeare. Mm. So that's a similarity between mm. succession mm. and Shakespeare. The, uh, Jesse Armstrong and his group are the Shakespeare of succession. And you can look to King Lear, and we'll talk about that. But you can also look to Hamlet, Titus Adronicus, Macbeth, Twelfth Night, Richard III. You can look to Jane Austen. You can look to Aristotle. Uh, all of these great dramatists you really can find in succession. And obviously, Jesse Armstrong and all of you who were performing it know that. So uh, you also can see it in these dynastic families, which is interesting as we put it all together. And obviously, the Murdochs have been talked about, but it could go to the Redstones or the Trumps or the Salzburgers or the Mercers or the Roberts or the Carnegies, the Disneys, I won't go there. But anyway, you, you can certainly see it. So let me start off by getting into all of this. Uh, what is it in England that, uh, and Shakespeare particularly, that gives the leads these kings their power as opposed to what gives Roy Logan the power in succession. How do these people that you are playing in succession have the same kind of power in today's world that King Lear had and others had? Maybe I'll start with Simon. Or is that just a stupid question to start off with? No, no, no. That's a great question, Michael. Thank you. Um, well. Just to talk a little bit about Shakespeare, if I may, and Please. his sort of beginnings and his vision of theatre and storytelling, but I think it somehow will trace back to your question. What's extraordinary about Shakespeare is that he lived at a very particular moment in history, and he lived in a moment which you could liken to the golden age of, of, of Hollywood or even the golden age of streaming, and that he was somebody that grew up in Stratford-upon-Avon in the countryside. He, he hadn't gone to university. He, his, his dad made gloves. But crucially, when he was growing up, the, the only theater that he would have seen were touring companies that would come and they would play uh, outside on the local green. And then in the late 16th century, this new idea, this new innovation appeared, which was this concept of building a theater, which was an entirely new idea in England. It was a building solely devised for the watching of plays. And this idea of the theatre that appeared in London for the first time was wildly popular. And everyone was excited to go. And of course, what happened was you needed plays and you needed them quickly because there was this new technology and one desperately needed scripts quickly. So Shakespeare was really just at the right moment in time to be at the heart of this revolution in storytelling. 
And what Shakespeare was brilliant at is going, right, I've got this very diverse audience. There are 3,000 of them in the globe. They're coming from all walks of life. Some are well off, some are not. They're all sitting in different seats according to their background, but they're all in the same place. So what I've got to do is think about stories that are going to be universal enough to speak directly to all the folks sitting in this new building called a theatre. And one of the great things that he did, of course, was to write in iambic pentameter. So Shakespeare lines are essentially written, didum, 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 didum. That's the kind of governing rhythm. And why I think there are lots of reasons that we can talk about he chose that, but one of the biggest and most important was that it reflects the human heart. <coughs> so everyone in the audience listening cannot help but be drawn in to this ba-bom, 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 ba-bom rhythm. So he starts with the technicalities, he starts in this new building, and then he looks to stories. So, of course, he's drawn to things like, well, love. Everyone's been in love, or everyone wants to be in love, or everyone has a memory of love. So let's think about the greatest love story, Romeo and Juliet. He thinks about fathers and sons, uh, which takes him to Hamlet, to the supernatural, to ghosts. And, of course, he's very, very interested in hugely powerful, patriarchal figures that believe they have everything. And the thing that frightens the patriarchal figures, these kings, more than anything else, is death. Because death, as Freud said, is the complex symbol, the impossible-to-unravel event that is hurtling towards all of us, yet none of us have experienced. But doesn't God and divineness give his heroes, like King, their position? So they start as a divine being. Yeah. And and that's where they begin, whereas in succession, they're corporate executives. Exactly. Oh, so they're divine beings as well. Yes. Well, quite. <laughs> so I think any a, a modern Shakespeare of the kind that succession is, is going to find some corollary between, well, who are the kings? Who are the towering egos? Who are the exciting monsters that we want to be glued to in a way that those audiences were in the time of Shakespeare with those extraordinary characters that he was writing about? But does Lear, he seems to spread his madness. Well, Lear is a very interesting play because it's a later play. Uh, the real interesting time of Shakespeare is the, the, in the 1590s when he wrote Richard III, Titus Andronicus, which were plays that he could get his rocks off on. And he really did get his rocks off, and that's why they're great plays to play. They're very entertaining. I mean, he really understands the nature of entertainment. Then he gets older. And the, I mean, he wasn't very old when he died. He was only 52 when he died. But when he gets to a point in relationship to his own family disintegrating, uh, there's a wonderful book called Hamnet, and mm. there's a very good production of it now at Stratford, about Shakespeare's son, Hamnet. Now, there's, there's a reason that Hamnet and Hamlet have a relationship together. Hamnet produced Lear. Lear came out of that time. And Lear is about rejection. It's about being endlessly rejected for somebody who's just saying, I want to give the kingdom away. I want to give it away. I want to give it to you girls if you all say you love me. And of course, Cordelia rightly says, no, I'm not going to go down that road. I, I, you're my father. I do love you, but I'm not going to go down that road that you want us all to go down. And she then is expelled and is sent off to marry the king of France. But the reason that 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 Lear is a more difficult play to perform than Titus, and I've played both roles. Titus is a great play because you get your rocks off, you can, do, you can go anywhere you want. 
Leah, you can't do that because Leah is about rejection. It's about the state of being told you're too old, it's over, get out of it. We don't want you anymore. And he says, well, can I have my men? At least you can have your men, but, they're not going, but now you've got too many men. So constantly everything is happening to him. He's endlessly being rejected. And it's also about Shakespeare's own personal rejection within his family. Mm. And that's where it reflects. That's why he's a mature writer when he gets to Lear. He really writes a play that comes deeply from within him. Mm. Unlike Richard III or Titus, they don't come from deeply within him. They're great plays, don't get me wrong. Titus has all the ideas for the other plays. It has even Lear in it. It has, Mac it has Othello in it. It has uh, Hamlet in it, Feigned Madness. It has all the ideas that come out that he distills to later plays. But the interesting thing is as he gets older, the plays get darker. And also, curiously, they become dark, but also you get the winter's tale. You get the tempest. You get coming to terms with who your life is. And that's what I think is so interesting of him as a dramatist. Didn't, the one thing I thought was interesting is he wrote Lear in like 1606. Mm. And that was at a time that King James was in the throne. Right, that's right. And King James was trying to bring uh, England and Scotland together. He failed. Uh, a couple of years later, the Catholics... Well, he didn't fail. It was all right for a bit. It was, the, it was later on that it failed. But he was not considered... That's successful. Well, he, they didn't like him. Well, the, the, you know the first thing that he did wrong, King James, interestingly enough, he hated smoking. Because in Scotland, they didn't smoke, they took snuff. And when he came to England, he found there were, everybody smoked. <laughs> and he wrote a whole dissertation on smoking. How much, Auntie, did you know about I that? I didn't know this. Oh, you went to Cambridge. <laughs> I know what I'm like. I'm <laughs> There we are. I left school yeah. at the age of 15. You're supposed to know these I didn't know about the smoking. I'm here, yeah. <laughs> but then the Catholics attacked Parliament. Yes. And then the For plague. For good reasons. And then the plague. <laughs> yeah. And at the same time the plague and all these horrible things were happening, Shakespeare wrote King Lear. Yeah. Very similar to today with a, uh, COVID, with what's going on mm -hmm. in the world. You and Jesse and all these people write Succession. Yeah. Is there, seems to me there's a, he was living in a time that we're living in now and wrote three plays when they couldn't even be performed. Yeah. Mm. So yeah. I thought that was kind of interesting. Mm. Anyway, on Richard III, who I guess is the worst monster in the Shakespeare quill, quill uh, how is it, that somebody like that or somebody like Logan or these uh, difficult children, why, are we, why do we want to watch them so badly? Well, because we like to hate. Mm. We love to watch people that we really hate, that we really dislike. And we start off because, oh, I don't want to watch this. Oh, I don't like this. Oh, hang on a minute. Oh, this is interesting. Oh, I really, oh, I see. Oh, oh, really? Oh, oh, wow, this is really great. This is what we do as human beings. We're so fickle with one another. It's not that their children are similar. It's not yeah. that, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. When you direct these hateful monsters, mm. you have to find some sympathy yes. in them to keep an audience attached, or don't you? Yes. 
Well, look, I mean, I think what's uh, another thing about Shakespeare is that um, rather brilliantly, we don't know what Shakespeare thought about anything because he very brilliantly hid all of his own views on the world. Mm. So we have no letters by Shakespeare. We have no diaries by Shakespeare. We don't even have any marginalia that he might have scribbled against one of his scripts. Nothing, nothing, zero, zilch. And it means that we're in a way even more available to speculate whether he was a royalist or an anti-royalist, whether he was left or whether he was right. We'll never know, because he rather artfully disappeared. And that's true, I think, of his characters, that it's actually very difficult to come to a stable, categoric view of these characters, because actually they're moving all the time between hero and villain, mm -hmm. and villain and hero and hero to villain. And he's very careful to take a character like Iago, who is one of the most, in quotation marks, evil characters in the whole of the canon, and yet he writes him in a way that his language, his wit, his intelligence are off the scale, completely breathtaking. So Shakespeare dares to say, judge at your peril. Out of the crooked timber of humanity, no straight thing was ever made, said Kant. And I think Shakespeare knew that, believed that, and embodied that. Yeah, it's interesting that Richard III, if you see the, the heading of Richard III, it's described as the tragedy of Richard III. Yes. It's not the, you know, it's not the Richard III that we all know. And also it was based on a, a, a rather scurrilous book by Sir Thomas More. And it was actually propaganda to dish Richard III. They all wanted to dish him. Now we've discovered that Richard III, and there's been a Richard III society going for a long time, Richard III wasn't that bad. And he probably wasn't responsible for half the things he's been accused of being responsible for. But Shakespeare wrote the tragedy of Richard III. I directed a Richard III. So I tried to know where is the tragedy? And of course the tragedy is, is the fact that he is, a, he is crippled. He is a cripple. He is a, he is a man who is, he says, at the beginning, I, I love the way you can quote, I can never quote anything. Uh, you know, now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by the son of York. And then he goes on about an I who's like this and like that and can't do this and can't do that and I'm, I'm the poor. And that's the tragedy is this man yeah. is completely, he's, you know, he's destroyed, physically destroyed. And people forget that because they just say he's an outrageous villain. Yeah. And the truth is nobody's an outrageous villain. Yeah. They all become outrageous villains. My image of this is look at babies. Go into, a, go into a hospital and look at newborn babies. I want you to pick out the one that's Hannibal Lecter mm. and the one that's Adolf Hitler mm. and the one that's Albert Einstein mm. and the one that's uh, whoever's nice. And it's hard to do. Yeah. The babies become something else because of what happens around us. And Shakespeare was so, so in touch with that, so in touch with circumstance. That's the other thing. The other thing, too, about the later plays, Othello, uh, Macbeth, all those plays that came in the Jacobean age was and the quintessential uh, change of that is Othello. Othello is an Elizabethan character. He is part of an Elizabethan world. He's part of a world of enterprise and a world that's forming uh, cities and cultures. And he's this wonderful black guy who represents this world. And he goes on and he goes, and he's incredible. 
Iago is the Jacobean. He's the guy who's questioning everything, who says, you know, it all's, it's all shit. It doesn't mean anything. What's he doing? It's all, it's all nonsense. And that's, and that's what's so extraordinary about him as a writer, is he, he's able to understand the time he's in better than anybody. Mm. And he does it exemplary. He also seems to be obsessed with the children of all these people. Yes. Mm. Uh, he, mm. In Henry IV, he's obsessed that Hal can never... Absolutely. And in succession, you are constantly obsessed. Obsessed with my horrible children. And do you... It seems to me you love them, but they really don't love you. Well, they do love me. That's... You see, I wish it was that simple. And that's the greatness of Jesse's writing. And that's why... He, he would, if he was here, he would hate this conversation. No, he would. He would hate the fact that they would compare him to Shakespeare. I mean, he, actually, he doesn't like the theater for a start, Jesse. What? He's not a lover of the theater. There are obviously deep psychological reasons for that. But, I'll talk to him. But the interesting thing is that Jesse really, he understands, he's got such a Shakespeare sensibility. These children are lost children. They're deprived children because they're deprived of, of, of perception of the world as the world stands. They can't see it because their, con their conditioning has not allowed them to see it. I'm afraid that exists. That's reflect on what is happening now. There's a whole group of people, their parents are well in charge, but if you think of the Murdochs, you know that Rupert is a smart cookie He's made certain hard decisions, but his children are a little lost. They're a little fine, well, I should go down the road of Fox. And the other one says, I don't know if Fox is a good idea. I'm not going to go down that road. And I feel for them in one sense. In another sense, I don't feel for them at all. But <laughs> it's because of the conditions that make children the way they are. And the, and the, and the, the Roy children, are, they are... They're, Entitled and they're deprived at the same time. Mm. Yeah, I would think about Ivanka in that same yeah. category. Yeah. How could you survive that family yeah. under any condition? Mm. Um, but also with Trump, in fairness to Trump, he's an abused child. Clearly an abused child because he comes from a family of a father who clearly abused him. And a mother, I mean, I know what Scottish Protestants are right, like. As a Scottish Catholic, I should well know what Scottish Protestants are like. And she was from a Scottish Protestant background, very free streets, very limited, very deprived. Coming to America, she probably didn't know what the f hit her when she came here. Um, but she met old man Trump, and the rest is silence. These children... <laughs> That's a good quote. That's a good quote. The children seem to want to be... Kendall sits in his father's chair yeah. in your show. Hal wears the crown of his father. Yeah. Uh, there seems to be a consistency. Maybe Jesse Armstrong unconsciously has seen all this. Well, or the thing is, you know, I'm a Scot, and you, c and, you know, I came to study in London, you know, and I didn't know Shakespeare at all. But once you're introduced to the world of Shakespeare, it gets you right in the very solar plexus of your life. Because he does, he is the best writer. Mm. 
He, there's no question about it. He simply is the best writer. He simply understands the human condition better than any writer ever, even the modern writers. And of course, he's infected everybody. Yeah. And whether Jesse likes it or not, he's infected him. And it's clear in his work. And, and in fact, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of the great American critic Harold Bloom that writes a lot about Shakespeare. And he published a book called Shakespeare and the Invention of the Human. And his thesis was essentially what you're saying, Brian, that this extraordinary writer from so long ago has somehow infiltrated our collective unconsciousness. That when we write stories today or we use language or we, we even think thoughts, it's because somehow we're in dialogue with this formative influence, consciously or unconsciously. When, on that point, I don't know if I should even get there, go to this, but it seems in succession that the writers deal with bodily fluids quite a bit. There's uh, defecating in the bed, there's urinating in the office on the floor, there's... Masturbation. I was against gonna, the, the, window, the company window. Yeah. I was trying to figure out before this how I was going to describe that. <laughs> <laughs> describe better than I would have done. Uh, and in Shakespeare, when he talks about bile, yeah. uh, black bile, yellow bile, uh, phlegm, are they both, in both these shows, those these writers, are they saying they may be royal, they may be God-given, they may be mm. the biggest uh, media star in the world, mm. but they're still animals. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I also think that one of the problems that we have, which of course is about humors, now the humors had certain, uh, the humors were the things that men and women contained within them. So bile was created because of certain influences, certain restrictions. So all of those elements were created. We don't have that sense anymore. We don't know about how these things affect us, how affected them that affect us. We, we don't have that, that's gone. Shakespeare has it. He pays not too much attention to it, but he gives enough attention to it. Yes, and I'll, I'll build on that, if I may, Brian. Go ahead. Directing King Lear earlier this year, I was very, very strongly aware of this idea of not only is Shakespeare interested in uh, evoking characters and types, people, he's really, really interested in what leads people to change. And what kind of extreme events can finally shift tectonically and bring a new way of seeing life? And actually, when you were asking the question about the visceral world, the natural world, it reminded me of a little few lines from King Lear, which, Brian, maybe I'll speak and then I, maybe I'll remind you. I feel nervous <laughs> for speaking them again, alongside you. But um, you'll remember in King Lear that he has this great, uh, he's enormously powerful and it all goes wrong and he suffers from a kind of mental collapse and he gets thrust out into the storm onto the heath by his by his own kids and when he's on the heath he, he turns to uh, uh to his friend and says they flattered me like a dog when the rain came to wet me once and the winds to make me chatter when the thunder would not peace at my bidding there i found him there i smelt him out go to. They are not men of their words. They told me I was everything. Tis a lie. 
And there begins his transformation mm. into arguably a stronger, kinder, better person. But unless you're exposed to the elements, elements you don't get it. How do you change? They also, in Lear, say the mad are leading the blind. Mm. So are we living in a society with a possible new president where he's mad and the rest of the world is blind to his madness? Are the people in succession mad and the, uh, they're, they're running the biggest media company, Fox-like or ABC or whatever, and the madder they get, you only see them influencing their children and their associates, but are they really destroying society? And the same thing could be, Trey, could be true in Lear. Is it just uh, Reagan and uh, those two characters, or is it the rest of society? Mm. Well, it's, it is the conditions of the time and the conditions that when the monarch makes the decision that he decides to make causes the, you know, it causes, I mean, it's like succession. It kicks off mm. everybody into Reagan and Goneril, you know, warring with one another and both their husbands and then everything that goes on between them and then Edmund and the treachery that goes on in the play. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it does kick it off. Uh, and I think that's why we're still connected very deeply with those plays. Mm. And every writer has to be. Mm. You can't ignore it. I don't care what Jesse Armstrong, you know, the, we may not like Shakespeare, but you can't ignore it. Yeah. Shakespeare, you know, living where we do, Shakespeare doesn't, and, and, and Involved in the theatre the way we are, you can't get round Shakespeare. You simply cannot get round him. Yes, that's true. It's it's a hard a hard act to get round. But also, uh, Brian and I were just talking about Buddhism, which Brian knows a lot more about than I do. But I believe the first tenet of Buddhism is suffering exists. And Brian, you spoke about life is suffering. Life is suffering. And Brian spoke about the heartrending book um, Hamnet, which is so brilliant. But it really describes what it's like to lose a child. And it's terribly moving. And when you think about Shakespeare undergoing this suffering, what he becomes curious then about is understanding and giving meaning to suffering. So I think a critical thing in King Lear, which was so radical, was that, of course, there was already a play of King Lear before Shakespeare wrote the play of King Lear. It had been on a few years previous. So uh, it had been someone else's version of King Lear. People had gone to these new theatres. They'd seen it. Great. Oh, William Shakespeare's done his version of a King Lear story. Great. So people trundled along. Now, in the, in the story that everyone knew, at the end, Cordelia, the beloved youngest daughter, marries the Prince of France and all is well. It is a happy ending. So Shakespeare decides, ah, something I want to change. So, yes, uh, King Lear is reunited with Cordelia in the last few scenes. The audience are thinking, great, we know the ending, wonderful. And then, to the horror of everybody, Cordelia is hung in front of her father. And the shock at the Globe Theatre in London when King Lear carries the dead daughter on stage, howling, is a remarkable example, I think, of Shakespeare's absolute determination to be truthful, to be authentic, mm -hmm. and to try and bring his own sense of loss into this omnipotent person, or so he thought, and faced with the body of his own child, finally, you feel, starts to crack into something 
spiritually profound. Is this why everybody dies in Shakespeare? Well, but I think in this case, he's interested to answer your question about, is it the end of the world? Is this a disaster? Is this a nihilistic vision? It's actually a vision of change. Yeah. And it becomes a metaphor of how we can all use that which is thrown at us in some way to try and grow from it rather than be diminished. And, the, and the change comes from uh, Edgar, you know, because yes. Edgar takes it on and he takes it. He because that world ends and we move into a new world, just in the same way that in this country you move from one presidency to another presidency. You use from one state of optimism, pessimism, to another state of pessimism, optimism, you know. Yeah, and then you have these wonderful last lines, which, which I would say resonate very well today with the way to this sad time we must obey. Speak what we feel. Not what we ought to say. <laughs> they rehearsed that. <laughs> no. Do you think, I mean, I think the, we, we generally watch these plays because of the cathartic nature, but for the grace of God go I, it's not me, and all the stuff. But do we also look at it because the act of a divine king or the act of a media or any kind of major family dynasty affects our lives? Yeah. It's not just them and their idiot children, it's our lives. Yeah. So we see Trump's funny little children running around doing stupid things, and it affects us in yeah. the end yeah. of the day. And we give too much attention to it. That's the other problem. We give far too much attention to it. Uh, I mean, I think that's the, the, the Trump problem. I mean, I'm, I, CNN goes on and on and on and on and on about Trump, and you just say, shut the f Oh, I'm you know, I'm oh, I don't know. I'm addicted to it. Yeah, and you just say you're supposed to be the the channel of sensibility. Be sensible. Ignore the. F That's the only way to be. So I want to get back to Jesse Armstrong, who's never watched a Shakespeare play. Why does he have you say? Would you like to hear my favorite passage from Shakespeare? Mm -hmm. Take the f money. Well, it's frustration. It's not the favorite passage because <laughs> never said take the money. No, that comes at a point where he's, there's so much cant of surrounding him with this very kind of liberal family and it's all hunky-dory and he just goes, oh, f this. You know what my favorite Shakespeare quote is? Take the money. And it isn't Shakespeare at all. It's, it's Logan, sort of. Well, I was just scrolling which play it was from. Similarly, but. Uh, Roman says... I land the deal, I'm crown king, just like Hamlet. If that happens in Hamlet, I don't care. So it's like, well, I should, let me go back to one thing. There is a lot of comedy in both Shakespeare and- Oh, it's an enormous yeah. amount of comedy. It's a little harder if you don't understand the language as well in Shakespeare to get the comedy, but you certainly get it in succession. Oh, you do. Mm -hmm. but, I, but I also think, I mean, it's very interesting. We're gonna talk about film. Uh, you know, Shakespeare on film, and, and I think it's really interesting that so much of performing Shakespeare has been in really conditioned in not good ways. I mean, it's, it's okay, but we had the sort of grand acting of, I mean, when I was 15, I 
There's a guy called John Henderson. It was my first job, and he invited me to, with a, not just myself, but a whole company, and I was included as a 15-year-old, I didn't expect to be, to go and listen to some recordings of Hamlet. Mm. Uh, the Hamlet speech, uh, uh, oh, what a pleasant, what is it? The, uh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I? Yeah, you know, that I'm, it's not monstrous at this play. The Hamlet's, you know, one, you know, oh, vengeance. And I listened to the speech, so I listened to John Barrymore, who took for never to do the speech. John Gilgood, who sang the speech beautifully. Uh, we listened to Ernest Milton, who was not half bad, actually. And then we listened to Johnson Forbes Robertson. Now, he was an actor of the early part of the 20th century. He was really, but his sensibility was extraordinary. And he read, and the timing of each speech was something like, the Barrymore speech took about 10 minutes. No, that's an exaggeration. It took about six minutes. The uh, Gilgood speech took about four minutes. Uh, the Johnson Forbes Robertson was over in three minutes, tops. Mm. And it was as clear as anything. And that's one of the problems that we have. One of the problems that I've inherited is that there was that you know, I, I grew up during the time of Laurence Olivier, and I actually saw Laurence Olivier play Othello, which was one of the most extraordinary and audacious performances I've ever seen in my life, because the sheer balls of the performance was brilliant. And then I saw Peter O'Toole not succeed as Hamlet. I saw David Warner being the Hamlet of his age. So I saw these actors, and I saw how they were all imprisoned by the past, in terms of how do we act Shakespeare? How do we play Shakespeare? Mm. And that was a difficulty for me that plagued me for a long time because I can, be, you know, I can do all, the, all that stuff. And I just thought, no, that's, that's, that's not serving it. It's not actually serving the play, not serving the animal. And it was interesting that what, when I did the film of Coriolanus and I played with Vanessa Redgrave, Vanessa, because she's as bats as all hell, but she has this incredible <laughs> sensibility about her. She just, she's so simple with the text. And it was, I mean, her Volumnia is well worth watching that film for because it's an extraordinary performance because it's so simple and so clear. And there's no, uh, there's none of that thing that she, we'd all been plagued by. You know, her father was Michael Redgrave, so she would lived in that whole world. But somehow or other, Vanessa's ex escaped it. I mean, she's eccentric, but she's escaped it and does the text in a very simple way. And I think that's one of the problems we have today is how do we play Shakespeare? How do we act it? Now, I always go back to Hamlet's advice to the players. Uh, speak the speech, I pray you, as I pronounce it to you, trippingly on the tongue. But if you mouth it, as many of your players do, I'd just leave the town cry, I spoke my lines. Now, when he says that speech, and I thought, well, that's an interesting speech because he's actually telling people how to act. Mm. And he's telling people, don't do all that stuff. Now, what he's just, and I realize where it comes in the play, it comes after he's been incredibly moved by the player king mm. who has acted in the grand manner. Mm. And he's acted in the grand manner. And he's, Hamlet is, he's because he's of that time, he goes, oh my God, this is incredible. And he's weeping. But when he comes back, he says, yeah. That's okay, but we have to remember to be modest. 
We have to be simple. We have to hold the mirror up to nature in a proper way, not in a bombastic way. You know, as he said, I'd as leaf the town crier spoke my mm-hmm. line. And this is where Simon has really succeeded. Yeah. I saw last night the uh, Romeo and Juliet. It should have been live, but because of the pandemic, you did it on the stage. Mm. It was simple. I never knew that, like, that Romeo had a girl problem, that he was nervous and, mm. and, and was really apprehensive about women, mm. that you showed so brilliantly and so simply before, she, before he met Juliet. Yeah. I mean, it really is something to see. $2, Amazon Prime. It's, uh, <laughs> it's excellent. But the other thing for simplicity, and I don't know how you feel about this, but Simon did King Lear in two and a half hours mm. from a four-hour play mm. with rave notices. What motivated you mm. to simplify it and shorten it? Is it for the American audience that has no uh, patience, or is it for other reasons? Well, look, it's a great question, uh, and I think uh, it be very interesting to hear Brian's take on this. I mean, so look, Shakespeare's plays are really long. And yet, at the beginning of Romeo and Juliet, the prologue talks about the two hours traffic of our stage. Yes. Now, if you do all of Romeo and Juliet, you're looking at maybe three and a half hours. These, they are really, really long. King Lear, four, four and a half, five hours. I mean, my theory, then, is that Shakespeare, like many writers, wrote more than he needed. He was in love with writing. So he would be in his garret or whatever. The pages would, would be coming thick and fast. And the job of the director then, as now, is to come up with a meaningful, accessible, impactful version of the plays for the audience that are seeing those plays today. When I, the film that you sweetly refer to um, was, in fact, not two hours, but 90 minutes, because PBS told me that in order to support the film, 90 minutes was plenty. But uh, I'll never forget the New York Times review, which was cut in half and twice as good. Uh, so that was very sweet. Thank you. But I mean, uh, uh, I got lucky there. I was somewhat nervous. Now, of course, there are different extremes, blah, 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 blah. But my sense is that Shakespeare wants the work to work. And if his ghost is with us today, I think he's not precious about the material. He's going to outlive all of us. It's not like the plays are going to be damaged forever. I think he was excited and is excited about artists coming and looking at the shelf and taking down a play and going, how can I bring this to life and do whatever I need to do to achieve that? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a great point. I, 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 I sadly, I haven't seen the Romeo and Juliet, but it's interesting it's the two... It's 90 minutes. Yeah, well, it's only 90 minutes. But I, I would take another view. Yeah. The two hours traffic of our stage. Now, I think that when he put the play together, he saw that he still had that line in. So he must have realized something. Why did he keep the line in, two hours traffic? Because he wants the actors to get the play done in two hours. Yes, to go fast, yep. And I think that's what we, we forget, that Shakespeare has got to... The thing is, if you play Shakespeare and you get his sensibility right, it can play incredibly fast. Yep. You can be very quick with it. You can get things through very, very tightly in turn. And also, of course, at the Globe Theatre, going back to, the, to, the, to that first, there was no scenery. And there was no lighting, and there was no interval. So the language would carry everything. And uh, and the other thing I find really interesting about Shakespeare as person who is speaking to his own community was that we people ask me both in England and in America, oh Simon, you're doing uh, Richard II or Macbeth or um, 
two gentlemen of Verona, will it be in period costumes? And I really understand that, that wish, that urge to see a little bit of history. But we've only got one sketch from an original production at the Globe Theatre. It was a tourist that was making a little jotting of, I believe it was Titus Andronicus, which has survived. And what we see in that little line drawing is that the actors on the stage of the Globe were not wearing clothes from the past. They were wearing the same clothes as people were wearing in the audience. That he was never interested in historical reconstruction. He was interested in taking old stories and making them now, yeah. fresh, immediate. So let me, let me do this. Let me open it up. We have a few minutes more right. for questions. I don't know whether we have a mic. Do we have a mic for people? Who a roving mic. We do at the back. That's great. So there's a question down here. There's lots of questions. With Terrific. blonde lady. Oh, here we are. Great. The blonde. The white-haired lady, Michael. You well, knew me when I was from blonde. From here it looks blonde. A long time ago. <laughs> Simon, I love your energy so, and I want to thank you for including both sides of the room when you talk. It was so lovely. Isn't he? It's amazing. Oh. Um, <laughs> off topic for a second. Could you talk about your Holocaust project for one or two minutes and how you got involved with it? Yeah. Um, Thank you for your lovely comment. Um, so running a, a Shakespeare theater, one is um, faced with the question of, what are you going to do when you don't do Shakespeare? Because however much people love Shakespeare, they don't necessarily want to see it all the time. They want to see something that might live in counterpoint with that. So what I've tried to do in Washington is to create big stories. So The Jungle, which I didn't direct, but we hosted, is a huge story about immigration and the challenge of the channel crossings now. And equally, uh, when Moises Kaufman, the great American director from the theater company Tectonic, came to me and said, uh, I want to do this story about some photographs that were found after the Second World War and sent to the Holocaust Museum in Washington um, about, and these photographs were of um, Nazis basically having a, a lovely time, enjoying themselves, eating blueberries, um, uh, relaxing, frolicking, and they realized that these photographs were in fact of Auschwitz that they were of a holiday camp sort of on the parameters of the camp. And the museum in Washington was faced with a very Shakespearean dilemma, which is that, is it our job as a Holocaust museum to show photographs of victims, or is it our job to show photographs of the perpetrators? Where does one draw the line? How does one process that as a moral conundrum? As well as the eternal and impossible question of the evil of the Holocaust, which defies any easy thinking. So Moises came to me and said, we'd like to do a play around these questions. And I said, that feels really meaningful to do that on our big stage. And he did a fantastic job. It's called Here There Are Blueberries. It did tremendously well. And it's coming to New York for uh, the next life at, 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 theater, at theater Workshop. Um, so you'll have the chance to see it. Other questions? There were some questions. Oh, right here. Okay. I can just take Right, you can even join us on stage. I won't, no, no thank you. <laughs> um, so my background is in linguistics and actually got there from theater. My fair lady inspired me to study linguistics. Mm. I'm curious how accents have played a role in both of your different crafts. It's been said that the American accent is actually much more similar to what Shakespeare himself had in mind when he was writing because our accent is what British English sounded like at the time and Obviously, Scottish English has its own 
very unique melody to it. So I'm just curious mm. how both of you have adapted your craft mm. to play with accents. Should I kick off? Right. Yeah, kick off. <laughs> um, well, look, there's a lot to say about accents because um, there's a lot also to say, I think, about power and accents and biases and traditions and one's one kind of voice being for Shakespeare. For me, the most moving experience of, of my learning around this was when I directed Hamlet for the Royal Shakespeare Company. I was very proud that I employed the first actor of color to play Hamlet in that company's history. Thank you. And uh, he was a, and is a wonderful actor called Papa Asadiu, who is British Ghanaian. And I talked to him about Hamlet and what it meant for him. And he said to me, Simon, this reminds me of my own journey of balancing two worlds of West Africa, Ghana, and being in Britain. And it made me realize that in Hamlet, there's a very interesting thing that Hamlet's away at university in Wittenberg. And he comes back home when he discovers that his father has died. And he, Hamlet, lives between this sort of elevated world of the university and the other world of spirits, of ancestry, of family. And as I spoke more to Papa, I said, goodness, there are so many striking parallels, aren't there? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, I think I better go to Ghana. So the RSC paid for me to go to Ghana, and I met many of Papa's family, and we decided, Papa and I, to set the whole production in a West African context. And so we created a prologue of Hamlet getting his graduation ceremony at a European university, and then him returning to a place of enormous turmoil, where our ideas of ghosts and faith and family came alive in a completely new way. And I speak about it in answer to your great question, because this was a company that was speaking Shakespeare using West African accents. And it was a complete revelation and opened so many new possibilities and so many new relationships that it taught me a huge amount that accents matter, but not the accents that you think. I still would like to hear Brian Cox. I still would like to hear Brian Cox do The Music Man. Well, The Music Man. Oh, I want to see that. That uh, was one of my favorite things. Were you great? I was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you were brilliant. I got reviews. I thought I'd get reviews from my singing. I didn't. <laughs> but I got Back reviews there from my dancing. With the white hair. I, I just, yes. Can I just, Silver hair. I'd like to talk about. Sorry, can I just, before you go on, I want to talk about linguistics. Mm. That's very interesting what he says. And I understand that. But if you're a Scot going to England, it was a highly different thing. The imposition was extraordinary. Mm. Tony Hopkins, more than anybody I know, suffered from that. He suffered it to such an extent that in 1971, when he was playing Macbeth, in Hamlet, in, in Hamlet, in Macbeth, he left the production because he'd had enough of being the Welsh guy mm. filling in. And it, it's very hard, that journey to the South. I mean, I was delighted to make it. I had the best education ever at, at drama school, but it was difficult because of where I came from. I knew I had to learn to speak. Learning to speak is different from letting go of your accent. And it was difficult for me to make that adjustment. I made the adjustment full-heartedly, but I was all, I've always been, it's a class thing in England. You know, I'm a non-commissioned officer. I could never play, an, I can play kings. They'll let me play kings, but they would never let me play lieutenants. Mm. I could never play that because the Scots would be regarded as sergeants, non-commissioned officers. 
But as kings, forget it. I've never understood why that is the case, but it was the case. It's different now, mm. but there's still an element of it strongly there. Okay, silver here. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so if, if you were tasked with um, pushing Shakespeare, down, Shakespeare, Jacobean, and heightened language theater down to younger audiences, what would be the three points of your strategy to, to try to affect? To reach younger audiences? To reach younger audiences, like, like high school, uh, middle school, and so forth, and make it really, especially in the United States, make it a really attractive... Uh, um, well, this uh, is a question about, yeah. about Shakespeare for, for now. And I, I think it goes back to what actually I think Brian and I are both saying, which is that for Shakespeare to succeed, those people on the stage must look like those people in the audience. That the, any idea that Shakespeare is the enclave or the protected territory of any one group is a disaster. And it was never Shakespeare's intention. His intention was always to be the most democratic of writers. And so my job running the Shakespeare Theatre in Washington is to ensure that the maximum number of people feel entitled, allowed, happy, welcome to be there at a Shakespeare. And all of one's anxieties that I'm sure many of us carry, I carry it, of going, will I understand the, the play? Will it make sense? Will it speak to me? Will it be relevant? Will I, will I be able to follow it? Will it be clear? That all has to be addressed. And I'm actually excited to say that we spoke briefly about Rafe Vines playing Macbeth, and Rafe said to me, I want to play Macbeth, Simon, but I'm so keen to reach new audiences, younger audiences, I don't even want to do it in a theatre. So we're going to cities, and we're going to transform spaces in areas that there haven't even been a theatre in. And he said to me, I don't just want to be the actor on the stage, I want to be the actor in the schools. So Rafe has said, wherever we go, we're going to Edinburgh, we're going to Liverpool, going to Washington, we're going to, we're going to have a corollary program where young folks come into the th spaces, they see the show, they meet Rafe afterwards, and we do work in the schools. Because I think the future of Shakespeare entirely lies in the future of the audience. Shakespeare does not live without all of you. And so it's career suicide for me not to take all of you profoundly seriously and find out how Shakespeare can continue to live for each and every one of you. I think that is a good note and to thank our guests who were brilliant as I expected they would be. We came within 32 seconds of an hour. So I wish you all good night. Thank you very thank much. You, Marco. Thank you, Simon. Cox is an actor and author. He recently played Logan Roy in the HBO series Succession. He's appeared in numerous films including The Long Kiss Goodnight, The Boxer, and Rushmore. On the London stage, Cox's credits include performances in Titus Andronicus for the Royal Shakespeare Company and Rat in the Skull for the Royal Court. Simon Godwin is the artistic director of the Shakespeare Theatre Company in Washington, D.C. He's also the current Harmon Eisner Artist-in-Residence at the Aspen Institute Arts Program. Previously based in London, Godwin was associate director of the National Theatre, where he directed Man and Superman, Twelfth Night, Antony and Cleopatra, and the world premiere of Hansard. Michael Eisner is the founder of the media and entertainment firm The Tornanti Company. 
He's been a leader in the entertainment industry for four decades, notably as chairman and CEO of the Walt Disney Company, a position he held from 1984 to 2005. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Festival team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening. Thank you.